Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Matthew chapter 9 here. We're going to see Jesus healing a paralytic let down through a roof. This is back in Capernaum, near Capernaum, north of the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to look at the calling of Matthew the tax collector, the author of this gospel. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. He got into a boat while he was over there in Gadara on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. The, the so is there is because the residents there requested him to leave because they were scared of him, as we read in chapter 8. And because they requested him to leave, so he got into a boat and crossed over. That's probably the same boat he came over there from Capernaum to start with. He crossed back over, going from southeast to northwest, ended up back in his own town of Capernaum, where, of course, he is where he has established his headquarters. Now, this was probably at Peter's house because we know before he went to Gadara that in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 says, Then they went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they began to teach. Eight verses later in Mark chapter 1, as soon as they left the synagogue, he went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. So Simon and Andrew living there with Simon's wife and mother, and that's where Jesus was living too. So there's our background as we go to verse 2, Matthew 9, verse 2. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this verse says some men, Mark, who is great at adding details, Mark chapter 2, verse 3 says, Then they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. So we got four men carrying this paralytic lying on a mat. And we know, too, that through the parallels that they cut open a, uh, something in the roof and dropped him down in the front of the crowd in front of Jesus through the roof. Now, Jesus saw their faith. Who's the there? He saw the faith, not only the paralytic, but also the people who were carrying the paralytic because they went to a lot of trouble to get this paralytic in, in front of Jesus's attention. Now, Jesus said, he saw their faith. This is another example of where Jesus positively responds to others' faith in him, like the centurion with the six slaves, such faith I've never seen in Israel. There is a question. There is a connection. There is no question that there is a connection between one's faith and Jesus' actions. For example, Nazareth, he saw no faith, and therefore he did no miracles. Now, I realize that that is emphasized by people in the word faith message. I do not agree with that message. I think it's extraordinarily screwed up. But all false teachings have a grain, a kernel of truth, and that's one kernel of truth. Jesus does respond to our faith. You can't deny it. It's in the Bible. How did Jesus see their faith? Because Jesus saw them take the tiles off the roof and lower the man into the house, as we've learned from Mark and Luther in the synoptic parallels. Jesus calls him son. Your sons are forgiven. In Luke 5.20, Jesus calls him friend. Your sins are forgiven. This is just a friendly appellation. We do this in English. We say son. Let's say usually an older man to a younger man, son. Come on, take your place in line here. I'll let you cut in. It's the same thing as saying, friend, let you come on in. I'll let you cut in. That's all. It's a friendly appellation. He said, Jesus then said an amazing thing. Your sins are forgiven. They didn't ask for their sins to be forgiven. They were trying to get, healed from, get the man healed from paralysis. It's amazing in the light of the man's obvious physical need, Jesus tended to his sin problem. And this illustrates how bad mankind's sin problem is. I mean, sin problem is every bit as bad as being paralyzed physically, and there's hardly anything worse than being paralyzed physically. Now, Jesus may have actually been connecting the man's sin to the paralysis. In other words, the reason he's paralyzed is because he's sinful. 
Gill and Clark bring up this possibility. Now, that might be so, but we have to be careful not to universalize that principle that all sicknesses are due to someone's sin. Some might be, but listen to this passage in Luke chapter 13, verse 4. Jesus is talking. Are those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed? Do you think that they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? In other words, Jesus is saying, don't blame that tower falling on those uh, 18 people that got killed. Things happen, and it's not necessarily because of sin. And, of course, that brings to mind Job. His false friends wrongly blamed all of his sickness on his sins, and they were entirely wrong. Now, it's interesting when Jesus forgave the man's sins, he did it without a confession of faith in Jesus. Nowhere does it say that the paralytic says, I believe in you, Jesus. Well, I suppose that the act of tearing up the roof and dropping the man down there and the man obviously wanting to get to Jesus, that was faith enough. That was confession enough. I believe you, Jesus. If you, I guess he figured if he believed him that he could heal him of paralysis, he could heal him of his sins too. Now, verse 3, at this, that means when Jesus said, I forgive you of your sins, Mr. Paralytic, at this, some of the scribes said among themselves, he's blaspheming. What does blaspheming mean? Clark gives a definition of to speak impiously of his nature or attributes or works. It just means to say nasty things about God, which is about one of the worst things that someone can do. Now, some of the scribes, and the parallel passage says scribes and Pharisees, Remember, all scribes were not Pharisees, and all Pharisees were not scribes, but a lot of scribes were both scribes and Pharisees. They were the ones that were responsible for copying scriptural text and for passing the traditions along, and so they got to be learned and pedantic and arrogant, and they were the preservers of the Jewish faith. And they said among themselves, not to Jesus directly, but among themselves, he's blaspheming. Why? Because he said that he had the power to forgive sins. Now, the punishment for blasphemy was death. So this was a serious charge. Leviticus 24, verse 16 says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh is to be put to death. The whole community must stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death whether the foreign resident or the native, the proselyte or the native, or the alien, excuse me, the alien or the native. Anybody that blasphemes God, that's a no-no. That's an ultimate no-no in the commonwealth of Israel. You don't blaspheme God, and this is what the scribes were accusing Jesus. But they didn't have enough guts to say it to his face. Now, why didn't they? They were scared to accuse Jesus publicly because Jesus was too popular. He had got crowds from all over the place coming to him, and he had stilled the storm on the sea he had cast out demons he well he just healed a a paralytic which is not the easiest thing in the world he had healed a leper before he went over to Gadara not to mention the uh, man full of demons in in Gadara he was just he he was too big a, a, a sensation for the scribes and Pharisees to get in his face and accuse him the people would turn on him and so they just grumbled among themselves All right, so let's go to verse 4 in Matthew 9 and read 4 through 8. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. First question, perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said. How did he perceive their thoughts, that they were accusing him of blasphemy? Here are some options. He could have just observed their attitude naturally like a man, just look at them and see the malicious look on their face. Or he could know miraculously as God, as John Gill and Adam Clark think. 
The Jews said that only the Messiah could know the thoughts of men. In other words, their Messiah detector test was, tell us what we're thinking now. And if the, if the alleged Messiah, if the Messiah wannabe couldn't tell the Pharisees what they were thinking, he was therefore, he had therefore proved that he was a false Messiah. All right, so if that were the case, that the Pharisees were doing this, Jesus would, and, and if it's true that he actually read their thoughts as God, then he, he beat their Messiah, their fake Messiah test, and proved that he was the true Messiah by reading their thoughts. Or he could have just looked at their face and tell, I, you know, all these things are impossible to answer whether Jesus is operating as God or whether he's operating as man. But at any rate, he knew what they were thinking about him. So he looks at him and he says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven and say, get up and walk. Now, what Jesus did here is he set him up. He set himself up big time because he had to make that man get up and walk now because he had to do that to back up his claim that he could forgive sins. Because you could say somebody's sins are forgiven, but how are you going to prove it? You can't prove that a man's sins are forgiven. That That's a invisible transaction between the man and God, which nobody can see with their eyes, but you can see somebody get up and walk. So in order to prove that he was the Messiah to these to these uh, doubting Pharisees, he told the man, get up and walk. Uh, he was going to get ready to tell the man, get up and walk. And then he says, but so that the, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees. I'm here telling you guys, I'm God. I can forgive sins. But, you know, the Pharisees didn't even believe the Messiah had the authority to forgive sins. But Jesus said, I got more than I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you more than what the Messiah can do. I'm going to forgive sins. And I'm going to prove to you that I can forgive sins because I'm going to make this paralytic get up and walk. Now you see why Jesus was causing such a stir. This was not any ordinary rabbi or any ordinary prophet that had showed up. This is why he completely eclipsed John the Baptist doing stuff like this. Why did he call himself the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a messianic title. Uh, it's the most, Jesus' most common title for himself. As the NIV Study Bible says, it's used 81 times in the Gospel. says the NIV Study Bible. It's never used by anyone else in the Gospel, only Jesus. We'll find out later, Stephen and Acts did call him the Son of Man. But was, this is basically his title. Why did he use that title to show that he was the Messiah? Well, because the title was Messianic. We see this in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel says this, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and this means coming up, not coming down, but coming up unto the throne of God. He, the Son of Man, approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, the Father, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So we see here the Son is taking authority from his Father, and... Jesus was the Son of God. He's taken authority from his Father to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah. So that's why Jesus used that phrase. Actually, we can also determine this by another, by the context in Mark chapter 8. In another situation, Jesus said to the disciples, but you, he asked them again, well, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And then the ver two verses later, Jesus starts talking about the Son of Man, answering Peter's affirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. Mark 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. So Jesus knew what he was talking about when he called himself the Son of Man. Now this title is actually kind of interesting where it came from. Remember, it was in Daniel. The only place that you can find it in the Old Testament is Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Here is a synopsis of a lot of information I culled from the Internet. I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's interesting. 
Many have said that Jesus used this phrase to emphasize his humanity. The Jewish idiom used son of to show a close and intimate connection with. Therefore, a son of man is someone who is human, who has humanity. Well, there's nothing wrong with this idea as long as one does not use it to detract from Jesus' divinity. After all, Jesus uses the phrase of himself when he forgave sins in Mark 2.10, which is where we are here, the parallel in Matthew 9, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, even though it can be used of to show Jesus was human, however, ironically, the phrase Son of Man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. He got the phrase from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, as I just said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and it's coming up, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The Son of Man was, pre was presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. But we know even more than we can get from the, from the context Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exiles, which started, uh, which uh, the big one was in 587 B.C. In Old Babylonian, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one, like a son of man, is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. Son of man is essentially the same as son of God in this context. So, we hear that phrase, son of man, we don't think too much of it, but by golly, the Pharisees knew what it meant. It meant he said, I am the Messiah. I have the authority to forgive sins, and I'm going to prove it to you by making this paralytic walk. A huge miracle, by the way. This is not one of these, well, you know, he might have gotten okay on his own. Jesus said that he had authority. He had authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, how did Jesus exercise such authority? He was a man, but he was exercising authority as God. How did he do that? Two, two ways, doing great healings and forgiving people of their sins. Jesus' ministry was both. He ministered to the body and he ministered to the soul, both of which often were sick. Then he told the paralytic to go home. Why? So everybody could see and thus prove the miracle and show that he had the authority to forgive sins. Why did Jesus say it's just as easy to forgive sins, to, to make somebody walk as it is to forgive sins? He was probably saying that neither forgiving sins or healing was easier. Both are equally impossible to men and equally easy to God. So, it's no big deal. I'm God. I can do either one. So, Pharisees, quit grumbling amongst yourselves. Quit saying I'm a blasphemer. As I said earlier, when Jesus told the Pharisees that he had the ability to forgive sins, he really needed to heal the paralytic. Now, cause can you imagine if he had said, I can heal sins, and then he had not healed the paralytic? He wouldn't have had anything to back up his charge. Uh, excuse me, to back up his claim that he had the ability to forgive sin. So he had to heal that guy. He put himself in sort of a tough spot, but not for him because he was God. He healed the man. Why did he say to pick up your mat and walk? Well, because when the man picks up his walk, paralytics don't pick up their mats and walk. It would show that he was completely cured and it, there would be no question about it from an evidentiary standpoint. And by the way, Jesus was careful many times to show that his healings to prove to the onlookers that his healings were real, that people could see them or there was testimony about them. And that's something that a lot of time charismatics today or Pentecostals today are very careless about. 
they'll make a claim to a healing and then they can't back it up, even though the healing might have occurred. If you can't prove it, it has no evidentiary value. It has no apologetic value. And in fact, opens yourself up to ridicule from people like John MacArthur and Todd Friel and Phil Robinson and the professional cessationists out there who run and down, who spend their weekends and nights and mornings and afternoons running down charismatics. Well, you don't want to give those people ammunition. So if you got a if you got a miracle, be able to prove it or just be quiet about it and rejoice privately. Matthew nine, and this is my humble opinion. Matthew nine verse nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. From there, he I guess he was at Peter's house at Capernaum, and he left there. And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he, Matthew, got up and followed him, followed Jesus. So here we have the calling of Matthew, the author of our gospel here. Now, Matthew it had another name. He was also called Levi, the son of Alphaeus, in Mark and Luke in the parallel gospels. Why did Mark and Luke not call him Matthew? Well, perhaps Levi, the son of Alphaeus, is not a well-known name, not Matthew's most commonly known name, and they were trying to conceal the former disreputable life of Matthew by calling him Levi, the son of Alphaeus, so nobody knew he's the former tax collector, which might have exposed him to a great deal of content. As you know, tax collectors were local Jews who were hired by the Roman government to squeeze the Jews out of every dime, every shekel that they could, and they wanted a certain percentage, and anything over that was their feet, and there was no limit on it. They just would squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and get as much as they could. They were contemptible human beings. They were working for an occupying power, and they were crooked, and they were greedy. And so Mark, Matthew and, uh, excuse me, Mark and Luke probably just covered up the fact of who they were referring to when they referred to Matthew. They called him Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew, however, uses his real name. He mentions his disreputable occupation of tax collector, 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 and he might have done that. What's the possible reason to make his conversion even more remarkable? Because by golly, it's like an IRS agent getting saved. I mean, how often do you hear that? An IRS agent is a Christian? Please, you're kidding me. And that's what people would say about Matthew being uh, saved. Uh, In chapter 10, the next chapter, verse 3, Matthew refers to himself as Matthew the tax collector. He calls himself by what he was. All right, I noticed that Adam Clark said that this man, Matthew, the tax collector, is generally supposed to be the author of the Gospel of Matthew. I guess some people might have a doubt about it. I don't. I'm assuming he wrote the, the Gospel. The word Matthew means gift in Syriac or gift of the Lord, which is a nice name because he was a gift of the Lord. He's given us a lot in his Gospel. Now, notice that when he was called by Jesus, he got up immediately without consulting anyone. He says, yes, I'm going. And this shows the incredible power of his call. In Luke 5, verse 28, We read this, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Leaving everything behind, his business, his job, his work, his life, his schedule, his dreams, his vision, everything. And that, my friends, is what it takes to follow Jesus. Well, I got to bury my, I got to take care of family obligations. I got a business. I got to do this. I got to do that. Excuses, excuses, excuses. You want to be a disciple of Jesus, you better give up everything, like Matthew, leave everything behind, especially when what you're doing is not exactly ethical and God-honoring. So he left from there, which was uh, in Capernaum, and went to the tax office, wherever that was. Now, it was probably, well, there's two options. It could have been a toll house or a booth in which Matthew sat collecting a ferry tax, a local tax, uh, that Capernaum or put on ferries that were crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown came up with that option. 
Or it could have been a place to collect taxes levied by the Romans or the Jews, not just for ferries crossing the Sea of Galilee, but for people walking on an international road which ran through Damascus, through Capernaum, to the Mediterranean coast, and down the coast of the Mediterranean to Egypt. So and this, is, this is the NIV Study Bible's op, uh, solution here, or suggestion as to what that tax office was. Now, this is interesting that Jesus set up his house on an international road. I never realized that. I thought it was some out-of-the-way village. No, it was on a road where there was a bunch of ancient Near Eastern commerce going by, which shows that Jesus probably was thinking strategically. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 11 says this, While he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the house, this is in Matthew's house, remember when you ate in the uh, Near East back then, you ate by lying down on your side. While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners, notice how tax collectors are hooked right up with sinners, not much difference. They, they were looked at as sinners in the eyes of everybody. And Matthew had invited a bunch of sinners, just generic sinners. They were probably, what, prostitutes, pimps, who knows, embezzlers. I don't know who they were, but they were some bad guys and tax collectors. They were probably his friends, Matthew's friends. So this was a, a feast of disreputable people. They came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Can you imagine what these fishermen thought as they sat down with the, with the Messiah to eat with a bunch of scumbags? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, first of all, we, I, I just finished saying rapists and murderers and such for sinners. It might not have been that. It might have just been sinners in the eyes of the Jews because a Jew thought a sinner was anybody who didn't keep the law of Moses. So if you got a nice moral Gentile person in there who didn't eat shrimp, he would be called a sinner because he wasn't keeping the law of Moses. I would be called a sinner because I don't, I plant uh, tomato seeds and cucumber seeds in the garden together. My shirts have cotton and linen intertwined together and so forth because I don't follow the law of Moses, so therefore I'd be a sinner, even though I'm acting like Mother Teresa and John the Baptist combined. So, but at any rate, the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus was doing. Again, everything Jesus did, he did it, he went out of his way to get in the, the face of the Pharisees. He hated that religious tradition of the Pharisees. He hated that tradition which totally abrogated the law of Moses and covered it up and covered up the goodness of God and the love of God. And once again, he was challenged when he did this by this these Pharisees. Now, I mentioned that the Pharisees looked at tax collectors as sinners. This is how bad sinners were looked at in Jewish society. This is from the NIV Study Bible on Mark 2, verse 16. Tax collectors could not serve as a witness in court. They could not be a judge. They were expelled from the synagogue, and their disgrace extended even to their families. Even if you're married to a Pharisee, if your dad's a Pharisee, you go to the local synagogue school, try to learn some Bible, try to learn some Hebrew scriptures, and somebody says, your father's a what? He's a tax collector? Get out of here. They were hated intensely. Notice that John the Baptist didn't say tax collecting was sinful, but in other words, he allowed for the possibility that you could have honesty. He wanted honesty within the profession, even if the profession wasn't of great reputation. That reminds me one time I knew a Christian, heard of a Christian. He was going to a Baptist church, and Baptist churches in the South tend to be a little bit anti-beer. And so this Christian was getting a lot of grief because he was driving a beer truck. They should have let him alone. There's nothing wrong with driving a beer truck. Now, I will say this, today's millennial Christians talk about beer like it was the Holy Spirit. Oh, I drank a craft, and I drank about 10 of them. See how free I am? They've gone to the other extreme. You know, reform pub cast. Please. There's nothing inherently holy about beer. There's nothing inherently sinful about beer, but there's nothing inherently holy about it either. All right. This party that, G that Levi, that Matthew was throwing for Jesus here that we're reading about, 
we find it out in Luke verse chapter 5, verse 29, was a grand banquet. It wasn't just a little get-together. It was a grand banquet. Luke 5, 29 in Holman Christian Study Bible. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. There was a large crowd of tax collectors, so this was a big deal. Now, Matthew did mention that little fact, that great feast that he threw, probably from a sense of modesty, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, but it was. It was a big deal. Now, you notice that, once again, when Jesus was healing the paralytic left down through the roof, the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled amongst themselves. Here, at the party, they went to Jesus' disciples. says, why does your teacher eat with collectors and sinners? But they didn't go to Jesus. They were scared to go to Jesus. He had totally intimidated them. Why had they done that? Well, it was hard to argue with a man who had just healed a paralytic, read the thoughts of minds, if indeed he had read the thoughts of the minds that they thought he was blaspheming. He had destroyed every argument that was ever brought up against him. He was... He said he had authority to forgive sins on earth and backed it up. No, they're not going to argue with Jesus. He'd whip them. He always did. He never failed to whip a Pharisee in open debate. That's why I love watching Jesus deal with these religious snoots, these religious hypocrites. The Pharisees probably thought they could tangle up the disciples easier than Jesus, and I think they were probably right. I mentioned that thing about sinners not being what we would normally call sinners, but just somebody who didn't follow the law. The NIV actually takes that interpretation and puts quotation marks, air quotes, around sinners. In other words, alleged sinners, although they're not really sinners. They were sinners only in the sense the Jews made of them. These tax collectors were ranked with murderers and thieves, by the way. So <laughs> they really were considered sinners. They were really bad sinners. They were considered such sinners that it was considered perfectly legal and just and moral to false swear, falsely swear to them. How much money do you have? I'm a poor man. I don't have anything. I didn't make any money this year. You could do that. You could swear by the golden, the altar in Jerusalem probably and get away with it. Gentiles did the same thing too, by the way. These people were thugs. So the term sinner also included evil and immoral people as well as moral people who refused to follow Moses. I need to make that clear. I said it could probably refer to Gentiles who eat shrimp and think people like that. But it also, it did do that, but it also included evil and moral people, people we would call sinners. It was forbidden to eat with such sinners, by the way, and there Jesus is with his disciples eat with them. So they broke the Pharisaical law as they, as Jesus spent half of his time doing. Now you notice that these Pharisees, they asked the disciples, why is your teacher eating with these sinners? They weren't concerned for the salvation of the tax officials and these sinners, whoever they were. They weren't concerned about the sinner's souls. They weren't concerned about anything. Just the law, the law, the traditions of men. <laughs> and by the way, there's a little Pharisee in all of us. Our traditions, our denomination, our theology sometimes gets takes a little bit higher precedence than our concern for human beings. Let's go to Matthew 9, verses 12 through 13. But when he heard this, he said, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. And he's referring to these sinners. They, um, they aren't well. They're morally sick. They're sinful. And they need a doctor to heal them of their sins. And, of course, Jesus was, he was the doctor. So then Jesus says, go and learn what this means. And go and learn is a common phrase the rabbinic teachers would use. Go and learn what this saying means. So he's, the, Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, the great teachers of Israel, he's using the same language that they often use when they tell people that know less than they do, go and learn. He's telling them, go and learn. He's completely above them. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. And, of course, the righteous there is talking about people who keep the Mosaic. Well, actually, in their 
terminology and make keeping the traditions of the Pharisees. And Jesus said, I didn't, I'm a, I didn't come to call the, these people, the self-righteous we might call them. I didn't, I didn't, that's not who I'm after. I'm after people who are willing to admit that they are sinners. And, of course, the number one thing when you witness to people, you've got to convince people that they're sinners. And I have discovered that that's not a hard thing to do. I, I don't know, maybe it's just because mostly I'm witness to Chinese people. And they don't have any problem admitting that. They say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I know it. Very rarely. I've never found one of them that would say, no, I'm not a sinner. If, if I have somebody hesitate, say, you ever lie to your mother? Or they all lie to their mother. All of them. I say, you ever lied? And that's the end of that story. I say, well, then you're a sinner. So Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The sacrifice would be, would be keeping the Mosaic law, not just the traditions of the Pharisees, but actually the Mosaic law. Uh, and it doesn't mean he doesn't want them to sacrifice. God set up the sacrificial system, and Jesus, Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow the law of Moses, as we know from Matthew 5. But if you put the merely, a merely after that, it makes sense. I desire mercy and not merely sacrifice. In other words, he's looking more for more than just rote obedience to religious ritual, as meaningful as that ritual might be. He's looking for you to care about people. Mercy. I desire mercy. And these sinners, they need me, and I'm going to minister to them, and I don't give a flying frip about what your pharisaical traditions are. That verse is easy to interpret. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. It sounds like it means call the righteous into ministry or into salvation. The parallel passages have call to repentance. Luke, or the parallel passages in Luke 5:32. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he's not just calling them in general. He's calling them to repent. So although Jesus loved to be with sinners, and he didn't mind the social blowback he got from eating with sinners, he didn't mind that. But he told them, you're sinners. Just like when he told that woman caught in adultery, I'm with you, lady. But I want to tell you, I don't want you to sin anymore. Go and sin no more. So nothing wrong with eating with sinners as long as you somehow during the conversation let them know that they're sinners. Otherwise, all you're doing is participating in their sin. And that's a fine line, as I'm sure you've run into before in your Christian life. Let's go to verse 14. Well, actually, that's it for this particular video in Matthew 9. Next video, we'll take up the issue of fasting at the beginning of video of audio number 9. I hope you enjoyed this one. 